Okay, have a tov. Can I ask, like I did last week, how many people here have heard of Rabbi Yosef Masas or Mashash? I see a hand or two. How many of you have ever had a chance to study anything that he wrote inside? Okay, so that makes one of us. Let's let's uh, take today as an opportunity to discover a tremendous Tamikhagam who, I will be honest with you, has been gaining, thank God, reputation in the Jewish community once again. And not that he was ever lost to us, but many people today who previously would never have come across his writings today are Baruch Hashem being exposed to these writings. Rabbi Yosef Masas was one of the most unique Chachamim to come out of Morocco in the last hundred years, in my opinion. Unique because he, he most definitely never told anyone's party line. Not even the party line of other Chachamim Morocco. He was his own type. You cannot put him in a category. Many people try to use Rabbi Yosef Masas to compare him with other... See, look, oh, these were the rabbis of North Africa. Really, Rabbi Yosef Masas is so unique because he's really not like any other Tamil Chamim that anyone may know of. It doesn't mean that he does not share similarities with others, but he is a Chad Bedo. He's one of a kind, one of a generation. I would like to introduce you today to the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas. This may be a strange place to start, but it is a natural continuation of what we studied together last week, of thou shalt not rust, and the need to innovate in halakha, and the need to be able to change things in halakha. And so that brings me to Rabbi Yosef Masas. I spent most of my years in Israel trying to collect the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas. I went to store after store after store, hunting down random volumes of a book here, random volumes of a book there. Baruch Hashem, I, I completed my library with a few books missing, Min Shemaya, HaKadosh Baruch Hu finished all of that. But there was one set that I didn't have. And I was looking for a very long time for this set. It was called the set of Otsar HaMikhtavim. Let me show it to you. It's a three-volume set of Rabbi Yosef Masas. I'm going to try to put it up to the camera so you can see. The artwork on the cover is Rabbi Yosef Masas' own artwork. He... He was an artist, he was a painter, he was a poet, he was many things. Um, And these books have been out of print for a long time. I was looking from bookstore to bookstore. It turns out, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but a year or two after I got married, I was in Muncie, New York. My wife was uh, finishing her master's degree at Yeshiva University, and I was coming to visit her in the summer. She had to go every summer for two months. I would visit every other week or every few weeks if I could, depending how long the Kilan could let me go and how much I could afford the trips back and forth to New York. I come to New York and I say, listen, I've been out of the Jewish community for so long. Just take me to a bookstore. She's like, Yoni, I promise you there's nothing in these bookstores here that, that's going to interest you. I said, just take me. Take me to wherever you can. So we went to a bookstore. Um, I won't mention the name out of Kavod to the, the owners of the bookstore, but I walk into the bookstore and I start looking around. You know, you notice all the regular run-of-the-mill stuff that everybody has. So I go over to the, the person behind the counter and I say, tell me, do you have any Sephardic books by any chance? If I could take a picture of the face that he made when I asked that question, I go, turn it to a portrait. It'll be a... His face says, no, why would we? That was the attitude. And I said, whoa, you know, there, there are Sephardic books in the Jewish community. 
Okay, we have a few Benish Chais and Ravavadias over there in that shelf. He points to me some random shelf in the back of the store. I was with Elchanan, so this must have been 2015, if I had to guess. I was with Elchanan, my, my oldest, who was a baby, and I was going to, nothing that I, I was so bothered that the bookstore didn't even care to have other books aside from what they, they have. I'm on the way out of the store, and Elchanan drops his bottle on the floor. So I get down to the floor to get the bottle, and if I could make up the story, I see on the bottom shelf of that bookcase where Elchanan dropped his bottle, I see three volumes of Otzal HaMikhtavim laying there, covered in, in dust. I can't even tell you. It took a while to get the dust off the books. And I, I'm looking at myself, saying, I was upset at Elchanan for dropping his bottle. I'm upset that I'm in the store that has no books that I need. And here, not only do they have Sephardic books, they have the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masat. It must be a mistake. Like somebody, this must be on, on reserve for somebody. It must be owned by the store owner. I take these three books to the front counter and I say, hey, are these books for sale? He says, of course. I said, how much do you want for them? He told me something like $60 for the set. I said, are you sure that that's all you want? He's like, listen, those books have been there since the 80s or the 90s. Nobody wants those books. If you'll take them for me, it's a mitzvah. I said, wonderful. I took the books from him, and Rabbi Yosef Masas's collection of my library was complete, and I cannot live, mamash, I cannot live a shiur, a halakha, a holiday, without the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas. Before I get carried away, let's learn a little bit about his life. We're on page one in the pamphlet, A Matter of Principle. Page one, again, from the Wikipedia article on Rabbi Yosef Masas. Unlike some of the other ones I've shared so far, this is a really weak Wikipedia article, but it has some highlights that are important to know. Halal Yosef Masas was born in 1892 and he died in 1974. He was born in Morocco and he passed away in Haifa, Israel. He was the rabbi of Tlemcen in Algeria. He was a rabbi, an Bedin in Meknes in Morocco. He later ends up in Haifa where he spends the end of his life. And he was a posek a mishorer, a singer, a poet, historian, a historian, v'ish tzibur, and a public figure. He was born in Miknes to Rabbi Chaim Masas. Rabbi Chaim Masas was a very unique Tamikhan. We have one book of his that was published posthumously by his son. Rabbi Yosef Masas was very young when his father died. And his family had kept all of the handwritten manuscripts of Rabbi Chaim Masas in, a, in some kind of chest up in the attic. And he figured when he'd get older, they'd give him the chest to look through and see if there was anything of value there. Unfortunately, by the time the chest was given over to Rabbi Yosef Masas, uh, he opens it up and sees that most of it had water damage, a lot of it was eaten by insects, and many of the pages had faded. And he did the best that he could to gather anything left in that work, as well as interview many other rabbis across Morocco, uh, to knew his father, to tell him Torah of his father. And that's what he printed in a book called Nishmat Chaim, The Soul of Chaim. That book has been recently republished by the World Sephardic Library. Yes. Can I interrupt? I just see in the chat section that people are complaining the audio is a bit sketchy. Um, I, I just want to make sure that problem is resolved. Can everyone hear me properly? Yeah, sorry. We had the connection issue, but we just rejoined. No, no problem. Okay. I, so, if, thank you. I appreciate that, Rabbanin. Thank you. Um. Rabbi Yosef Masas goes to Algeria. You know, the borders between the North African countries are pretty fluid. Uh, they change, 
uh, people fluctuate from place to place. Algeria and Morocco, don't tell any Moroccans or Algerians that they're pretty much the same country because they don't believe it's very much the same country, but they're pretty much the same country. And the, the rabbis went, uh, went back and forth between these communities quite naturally. It'll be Yosef Massas spends about 17 years in Clemson building up a community from the ground. Uh, he goes back to Mikinas after the passing of Rabbi Yaakov Toledano from the famous Toledano dynasty. If you're familiar with any of the Chachamim Toledano of the Moroccan lineage, to all their different branches. There are many different uh, groups that came out of there. Uh, but they, he goes to replace him as a Dayan in Mikinas. And ultimately, as a Dayan in Morocco, you're not just a rabbi, but you're a rabbi uh, in good standing with the government. You know, the, the chambers of the king had the chief rabbi, his office in there. Uh, this was some, a pretty serious job description to be a Tamik Chacham in Morocco in those days. He was the cousin of another Rabbi Masas that you might hear very often, Rabbi Shalom Masas. Rabbi Shalom Masas was the younger of the two. He also has passed away since, but Rabbi Shalom Masas also was a little more, if I could use the word, mainstream of the two. Uh, Rabbi Shalom Masas comes to Yerushalayim, becomes the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, even though him and, for example, Rabbi Ubadi Yosef have their, you know, bouts with each other about halachot, but they are on very good cordial terms. Rabbi Shalom Masas, when he passed away, he left the chief rabbinate of Yerushalayim, that office was vacant for some 10 or 15 years until fairly recently when they reinstituted chief rabbis there. It was a very difficult position to fill and Rabbi Shalom Masas, who was the younger cousin of the two, did it quite expertly. Like I mentioned to you before, Rabbi Yosef Masas was quite an artist. You can purchase Haggadot today. Uh, his Haggadot written not just with his artwork in it, but in his own handwriting. He used to write certain books in a beautiful kitab. I should have brought a copy for you. In a beautiful handwritten, some Rashi, some Torah script, some uh, in different sizes and shapes. It looks like a printer printed a book in his own handwriting, and it was intended to be copied and, and studied from in public. He has another work written in his own handwriting called Zevach Toda, which is a book on the laws of Shechita. It's essentially a long poem that teaches you everything you need to know about the laws of Shechita, with a running commentary. There's a famous piece in the back there of Rabbi Yosef Masat, in which he discusses very briefly the idea of whether or not a woman can be Shochatim, or Shochatot, I guess would be the proper term, and why you see that even though Maran says it's okay, the Jewish community seems to have developed a different custom, and he talks about that. It's one of the few uh, contemporary poskim who deal with such an issue in the way that he does. Let's talk for a moment about Rabbi Yosef Masat and his halachic attitudes. I'll just remind people, I don't know what's going on in the chats, but I, don't, I can't check the chats while we're talking. If you want to interrupt me, just turn off your microphone and uh, interrupt me. I'm more than happy to hear from you. Rabbi Yosef Masas was an individual. I think that's the best word I can use for him. And recently, Rabbi Chaim Amsalim, should live and be well in Yerushalayim, wrote a fascinating article on, I think I may have shared this with you last week, I don't remember anymore what I shared and which you about what the approach of Chachmei Sfarad was. Is there a collective approach of the modern Chachmei Sfarad? What unites them all? And he says it's not true that they were always lenient. You see some of them were radically extreme. Even Rabbi Yosef Masas was extremely stringent in places where other Chachamim who were more conservative than him, for example, were lenient. He says rather what was unique in these communities was the ability of a posek to be independent. To not always look right and left before he ruled the halakha. Are they going to call me a reformer? Are they going to tell me if I'm orthodox? Are they... The job was, I have to ensure the, the spiritual continuity of this kina. That's my job. My job is to do whatever it takes to make sure that until the next chacham takes over, 
that I hand off the baton in good standing, that these people are still connected and still part of Am Yisrael. And it could be that for that reason, Chachmei Sfarad of the later days, when they put out innovative halachic rulings, they didn't always care to write elaborate tishuvot explaining. Because it wasn't intended for your kila, and it wasn't intended for your time. It was intended for his kila and his place and his time to get his people to the next step. Anyone know some famous piskei halacha of Yosef Masas that may come off as controversial? Hugo, you said you studied some of his things. Anything off the top of your head that you remember? His uh, ruling on uh, carrying on Shabbat, which is which was really uh, mind blowing. Uh, um, should I expand on that? Yeah, sure, please. Basically, his um, his argument was that it's permissible to carry on Shabbat because uh, he defined public domain in a certain way, which basically included the Ashkenazi opinion that you need six hundred thousand people going through a public domain for it to be public domain. And uh, since there's no, he couldn't think of any places where that six hundred there's like a like a street with six hundred thousand people going through daily. There's no public domain. But if there's no public domain, then there's no need for these. Uh, I forgot the Hebrew word, but the intermediary domain between private and public. Carmelite, I believe. So it was just. It was uh, Karmelites because it was just created by a uh, Hazan as a as a as a rabbinic fence, and so if there is no public domain, there is no Karmelite, then everything is private domain, so you can carry everywhere. Very good. Which is uh, quite a brilliant reasoning. Rabbi Yosef Masah sees a situation in which Jews are carrying a Shabbat without an eruv, and instead of critiquing them, attacking them, he realizes he has to come up with an innovative solution. How can I justify what these people are doing on Shabbat? And he comes out with a fascinating tshuva. You don't need Eruvin. An Eruv is a, a thing of yesteryear. Today you can carry it without an Eruv at all. And another Psaq HaLechav Yosem Masas. Anyone know? That was very good. Anyone else know of anything else he said? Hair, hair covering one? Very good. Mark, what, what do you say about hair covering? Um, off the top of my head, he says that we can, um, with regard to, being to, to needing to be covered, we can look at the societies that we're in where we see that women don't cover their hair, so therefore it's not considered to be Erevah, I think. So therefore, if a woman wants to not cover her hair, I guess, you know, she could explore that opportunity. So Vito said Masas was approached very good by a couple who wanted to get married, and the husband had a really hard time that his wife, his future wife, didn't want to cover her hair. And Rabbi Yosef Masas goes on a very long teshuvah in which he explains that really, according to halakha, nowadays women don't have to cover their hair at all in the first place. Uh, that's a famous teshuvah of Rabbi Yosef Masas that don't worry has been a matter of discussion many many times over since he wrote it and uh, that's very good anyone know anything else any other teshuvah of Rabbi Yosef Masas yes wait Alexander Minashe I can't hear you do you hear him I don't hear him no we can't hear you Okay, when he figures it out, we'll get to him. When you figure it out, speak. Um, anyone else? Uh, I have another one. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, um, I was more focused on Moroccan and Hagim, and uh, he was talking about Kaparot, and he was, um, he was, he was talking about that there was maybe some issues with uh, doing Kaparot, such as like um, the Shachet has to do so many Shrita on that day 
that he might skip like the knife hacking. I'm impressed. That's that's a lesser known lesser known teshuvah of Rabbi Yosef Masas. That's but that's very good. That's right. He, he, Rabbi Yosef Masas in general, if you're getting the picture, he was one who just sometimes came out of left field on certain issues. All of them with a common denominator. Alexander Menashe, I want to hear which one you which teshuvah you were going to share with us. Hey, can you hear me? Now? Yes, I can hear you now. Oh, so, um, so uh, I heard that he, he ruled that Christian Christianity or Christians are not idol worship worshippers, and he did, he did this on the basis that they don't believe in strict. You know, they they believe in one God. The average Christian on the street, who's maybe not so well versed in the theology, is a uh, is somebody who believes in one God. Biosef Masas uh, was. Was adamant. You're correct. I have a series on this from a few years back called uh, "Churches and Mosques in Halakha," in which I explore, explore different opinions on that topic. But Rabbi Yosef Masas went to meet with a priest in Morocco, and that's probably the root of his opinion. You should know is that he met with a very unique brand of Christianity in North Africa that is not so uh, reminiscent of any of the other Christianities that we're familiar with. Uh, but Rabbi Yosef Masas suggests that they are monotheists, they believe in Hashem, we have judged them wrong all of these years, and that uh, not only is it okay to enter a church, it's, okay, it's absolutely okay to enter a church, and that anybody who speaks ill of Christians, and he includes Muslims, obviously, if you're Christians are okay, that anyone who puts those who believe in Hashem on the other side of the fence is creating a terrible chilu Hashem. There are so few people who believe in Hashem anyways, that why would we further divide those who believe in Hashem in the first place? Famous teshuvah of Rabbi Yosef Masaz, very good. He has some teshuvah, I'm going to throw some more at you. The flying on airplanes on Shabbat, absolutely permissible. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Masaz discusses um, uh, electricity on Yom Tov, probably a very famous teshuvah you're familiar with. He's one of the first about the electricity on Yom Tov. Um, uh, Banit, what other teshuvah I have of Rabbi Yosef Masaz? Very good. When he comes when he comes to Tlemcen, he finds out that the Shochatim and the butchers there are not Shomrei Shabbat. <laughs> they're not observant in the, in the halakhot of Shabbat. And there's some nine butcher shops, and he goes through this thing trying to get them to become, doesn't work, trying to shut them down doesn't work. At the end, he letters a famous teshuvah in which if these people are are observant in matters of kashrut, you can rely on their. Uh, on their meat, on their butcher shops, without any supervision, because they are observant of the laws of kashrut. And even if they're not observant the laws of Shabbat, uh, they don't lose their cheskat kashrut, their kashrut status, because of that. There's a fascinating teshuvah, in which Rabbi Yosef Masas comes to the situation, sees what cannot be changed. Can you hear me now? See what cannot be changed. I know the... See what cannot be changed, and then uh, uh, there's a setting on the phone I didn't address before. Sees what cannot be changed, and comes up with a novel teshuvah to deal with that situation. Ultimately, Rabbi Yosef Masas is a yechid. He's not just radically lenient. There are other times Rabbi Yosef Masas goes in different directions. But now, in the nine days, for example, this is a teshuvah in which Rabbi Yosef Masas is famous for. Now what happens with a couple that comes to Morocco for a visit, Algeria for a visit? They're going to go back to France. You know, France for North African Jewry was the melting pot. It was what America was to European Jewry. It was where Jews went to assimilate. And uh, Rabbi Yosef Masas had a couple that was leaving. They wanted to get married in a Chupan Kiddushin. But if they would go back to France, they would miss the opportunity and they would just live together without a Chupan Kiddushin. 
And he deals with the question of, can I do a wedding for them, not in the nine days. Can I do a wedding for them on the eve of Tisha B'Av? So Chet of Av, the eighth of Av. And Rabbi Yosef Masas writes that not once and not twice did he do a wedding for such couples on the eve of Tisha B'Av, and he had no fear at all. Because compared to a halakha, that a couple should be married properly, he's not worried about a minhag that develops of not getting married in the nine days. Now he has restrictions there, you know, maybe not weddings with music and dancing, but he most definitely performed chupah v'kidushin in that time period. Rabbi Yosef Masas, I'm telling you, it's a tanu to read his writings, even if we don't always agree with his conclusions. By the way, most of what I shared with you beforehand is not the opinion of Mori Harab Yaakov Peretz, uh, but nonetheless, to read such a chacham who was not, not afraid is not a word. Not afraid, he didn't care what other people would say. He did what he needed to do in the kihilot that he was in. You don't find chachamim like that, and you're not going to be surprised that on a page from now, we're going to discuss all of those rabbis who didn't really love him so much because of those opinions. Rabbi Yosef Masas discusses lighting the Chanukiah on Chanukah with electricity and the permissibility of that. We're going to be discussing today the most extreme ramification of his belief that electricity can be used to light Chanukah candles. And that is, that according to Rabbi Yosef Masas, oh, let's, we'll get there, we'll get there. Rabbi Meir Abidbol, who's a dear friend of mine, is someone that I visit often in Israel, he's the owner of the World Sephardic Library, more that's where you shop. Uh, that was you, right, who said you were there? Nachon. Um, Rabbi Meir Abidbol writes the following words on the bottom of page one, bottom left. Betkufat haskala b'morokko. In the Enlightenment period, the Askala period in Morocco, Lo natnu rabotenu lafechad misrael lehargish kirashah bifneatzmo. The rabbis in Morocco had one mission, and that was that no Jewish person should consider themselves an evil person. No Jewish person should consider themselves outside of the Jewish community. That was their goal. Their goal was how do I combat a Haskala movement that is trying to suck people out of the Jewish community? I'm going to combat it not by throwing them out like other Jewish communities did, not by closing the door on them like other Jewish communities did. I'm going to keep them in by just letting them stay, by pushing the envelope as far as possible to make it as difficult as possible to leave the fold of the Jewish community. To the contrary, they tried to make it seem like it wasn't so bad. They tried to do whatever they could, even if it was tremendous novel interpretations of halakha, so that people shouldn't consider themselves violators of halakha. Because if I think that I'm violating halakha, I'm not going to keep any halakhot. And if I'm not going to keep any halakhot, then I'm definitely going to forsake my portion of the Jewish community. And Chachmei Morocco did everything they could to combat the, the wave of secularism that was pulling people out of the community by fighting fire with fire. By essentially saying, you know, you want to push the envelope? We're going to push it for you. You won't be able to leave. And whereas some obviously view that as giving in, the truth speaks for itself. When you look at Yotzei Morocco, who dealt with a very similar, although different in its own right, enlightenment movement as European Jewry did. And if you look at two or three generations afterwards, how many Moroccan Jews are still married to Jewish people? Are still part of the Jewish community? Still observe the holidays and Shabbat? And look, unfortunately, the other communities 
how many of those descendants have nothing to do with the Jewish people? In fact, some days, and I told you someone, uh, I think Daniel was surprised. I said there are 100,000 Jews in San Diego. But 71% of them aren't affiliated with anything. I sometimes wonder, how do we count them? How do we even get to them? These are people in America of 2,000. 2,000. There were 600,000 Jews living here as Christians. So it tells you the numbers that we're dealing with. We're dealing with an assimilation rate. I'm sure everyone gets scared by all the uh, Bible-thumping rabbis to talk to you about assimilation rates. Those numbers are still real. The men of Jews that leave. Chachmei Morocco did everything possible to keep people inside the vault. Can you give me one moment, please? And that brings us to the next page. Page two is really just many of the books that will be of seven Mazazrol. Books on halakha, books on uh, uh, different ideas in, in Jewish philosophy. Uh, the famous commentary we mentioned last week about Perkei uh, Avot and Achalat Avot. There are a number of the Haggadah Pesach, a book on Chanukah. Some of his books have been reprinted. So this book, Otzara Mechtavim, has not been reprinted. It's available for free as a PDF on HebrewBooks.org, if you wanted to download uh, the three volumes. They have reprinted the two books of his Shailot V'chuvot, Mayim Chaim, The Waters of Life. Uh, his grandson has recently reprinted four volumes of Mayim Chaim. How do you reprint books that didn't exist? Essentially what he did was he went through his father's, uh, his grandfather's Otzara Mikhtavim and extracted any halachic letters that were there. He ignored the ones about history ignored the personal letters, just took out the halachic letters, and came up with two more volumes of Mayim Chaim. The set is available uh, quite inexpensively in Israel today, if it's still uh, on the shelves, it's a private printing, and it has some fascinating teshuvot, and it's probably the most complete set of books that you can buy of Rabbi Yosef Masas and Halakha. There is a Dayan, actually, in the United Kingdom, who I don't know anything about, aside from that I have some of his books, uh, who has printed some of Rabbi Yosef Masas' books. He's a rabbi, maybe Rabbi Pinchas Toledano is his name. Um, and he printed a Geresh Erechim, which is a book on, on Gitin of Rabbi Yosef Masas. And for a long time, that was the only edition of that book that was available. The grandson printed that book again in his own text, in the back of the third or fourth volume of this series, too. So... If you would like to explore more of his writings, that's definitely the place where I would suggest that you start. Brian Toledano is a, a very big deal. Yeah. Oh, okay, Baruch Hashem. So he, he is mamash single-handedly responsible for keeping some of those works alive in the last, I can't even tell you how many years. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Maybe, maybe if I get back, I would really love an opportunity to meet him. That's something, uh, if somebody here has an in, I would love to make that happen. Okay, I'm bringing you to page three. I debated greatly before adding page three sorry, into this. Sorry. Can I just ask a question? Sure. I know obviously like, uh, this rabbi is, is approaching things through halakha, but what would, what would from a sort of, uh, I don't know exactly the word, but from a maybe philosophical point of view, what what's the answer to someone, say, who's, who is a reformed Jew saying, look, we're, we're trying to keep people in the Jewish community, uh, keeping people as Jews. You're doing it your way, we're doing it our way. What's the difference? So, I was very recently in a... In, a yeah, rabbi- in the sense that, they'll, that they might say, look, you know, 
your people are carrying, so you're saying our oh, Erebim don't exist. But we know this is a game that you're playing. It's all that they might put that accusation out. Rather than being creative, you're just kind of uh, playing a game to say, you know, black is white because it suits you. And we're more honest because we're saying, look, you don't need to do this. It's okay to carry on so, By the way, this is actually a very good point of conversation, and it has a lot to do with how you view halakha, and that's it's our next shiur together is going to be about the elasticity of halakha and, and exactly how that works and how the system works. I would say in a, in a one-line answer, the answer would be there's a difference between innovation that comes from a place of disregarding that which is old and creating something new, and innovation that comes from a place of profound respect of the old, and that is what is motivating you to create that which is new. Really, the end result may be the same. It's the motivation in the middle, the the process that one goes through. Is it disregarding the old, or is it, this is what the old is demanding for me to do right now? And I'll be honest with you, is I think that had the reform movement taken place outside of the limited geographic place of Ashkenaz, I think the Chachamim of other countries would have dealt with the healthy critique of that movement very differently. That, that movement, it didn't come, it's not a purely evil movement. I'm, I'm not a reform rabbi and I think everyone knows that, but that, that movement came with serious critiques on the, okay, maybe, my wife is laughing, maybe not everyone knows that. Okay, I'm, I'm declaring now. That, that movement has serious critiques on what was a very rigid orthodoxy. And uh, some, there's a reason why that movement didn't take place in countries that didn't need it. Because the Judaism was already flexible. The Judaism was already moving on its own. And I think that there is definitely what can be studied from the critique of that movement. I think it would be very fair to say that the reform movement of today and the reform movement of yesterday are most definitely not the same thing. Some things have been much better and some things maybe not. Uh, nonetheless, I think that the, the bottom line is what is the, what is the, the perspective on halakha? When you're looking at the old, is it something that you don't consider binding on you? If that's the case, then your innovation is not innovation, it's just displacement. But if you view halakha as something that is living, that is breathing, that you are obligated in and bound to, and you are simply extending or adjusting things because that's what you believe the chachamim would have done in your situation, that's definitely going out on a limb. It's definitely a risk that a posek takes in such a situation. But it's one that is warranted by halakha, and we are going to spend much time actually discussing that next time we learn together. That's uh, Arab, if, I, if I may uh, add something. Please. Um, I actually, I actually uh, read something quite interesting about reform in other, ge- uh, or, uh, in other location. Uh, I, was, uh, I was researching about uh, Israel Moshe Hazan, uh, and uh, actually um, there was a, a small... Uh, uh, a small uh, Sephardi reform group that disappeared uh, because essentially Israel Moshe Hazan uh, kind of eliminated it by accepting certain, let's say, uh, leniencies. Uh, there, there was this movement actually in, uh, in England in the Spanish-Portuguese community in London and they broke away regarding Yom Tov Sheni and uh, Israel Moshe Hazan uh, defended the practice of Yom Tov Sheni on Halakha grounds he wrote a whole book about it, Kedushat Yom Tov. That's the whole book he wrote to combat this idea. But he allowed this leniency of basically allowing, counting, um, counting people that desecrate Yom Tov Shani in Buminyan and basically saying that it's better for, that, for people to desecrate Yom Tov Shani but acknowledge their sin 
rather than kind of like making up a new thing where they uh, just ignore halakha and that basically killed the what was the, the birth of Sephardic reform. So that's like quite interesting. Yeah, that's a very good. I, I just didn't think somebody was that familiar with that. Uh, Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan dealt with this issue exactly like what you said. He preferred that people should be honest. It's okay. I, I want you to keep Shabbat. But at least tell me that you believe that you have to keep Shabbat and then break it. Instead of telling me you don't believe in Shabbat in the first place. It's a, it's a, it's a different mentality in terms of, and he explains this, someone who violates a biblical commandment out of desire, out of need, but knows that it's a biblical commandment is still greater than one who violates only a rabbinic commandment, but out of blatant disregard for our rabbis. He viewed this disregard of halakha as the problem, not the exact level of observance of halakha. Essentially, you end up crushing the opposition when you allow such a perspective in the Jewish community. And I'll be honest that I'm sure that other chachamim were unable to do this because of the lack of control, the, the handle that they did not have on their community in, in those situations. And Rabbi Salam Chazam was a very powerful figure. Interestingly enough, he was brought to the United Kingdom by a very corrupt a Jewish politician. Uh, Rabbi Faur has a book on Rabbi Islam Chazan, and a footnote there elaborates about him. Uh, we just studied this in my Kila together in Shabbatot. We studied that book uh, about Rabbi Islam Chazan, And this, it's fascinating. They, they recruit him into a war that's not his war, but I think he did wonders with it anyways. It's very interesting. Thanks for bringing that up. Let me take a tangent with you for just a few minutes. Oh my gosh. Um... <laughs> This page three, I, I was for a, I was really debating whether I should add it or not. I've been collecting over the years other rabbis, namely Sephardic rabbis, because it's not fair to pick an Ashkenazi rabbis for not knowing of or not liking some random Moroccan rabbi who said things they couldn't swallow. Uh, but other Sephardic rabbis who knew Rabbi Yosef Masas, who knew the greatness of Rabbi Yosef Masas, and still chose uh, to vilify him for some of the things that he said. There's a famous Chacham, Rabbi Moshe Malka, Alav Shalom. Rabbi Moshe Malka uh, was a Dayan in Israel after being a Dayan in Morocco. I have a few of his works. Unfortunately, those have been out of print for some 30 years now. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Malka was asked whether in Morocco Rabbi Yosef Masas was considered a mainstream rabbi or not. I mean, do people like him in Morocco or not? And he writes the following sentence. He says, those who love the truth love Rabbi Yosef Masas. And those who loved Chumrot hated Rabbi Yosef Masas. Those who loved the truth loved him, and those who loved stringencies, they hated him. Uh, meaning it's a war between truth and stringencies, not between leniencies and stringencies. Rabbi Yosef Masas was really a tamikhacham in good standing. If I'll, if I'll tell you that Rabbi Shalom Masas, the younger cousin, makes a few interesting points. Rabbi Yosef Masas says you don't need a eruv. He said, but I remember going around Morocco putting up the Eruv with him before Shabbat. I remember checking every Eruv Shabbat, the Eruv with Rabbi Yosef Masas. Rabbi Yosef Masas, his wife covered her hair. His daughter covered her hair. His granddaughter, still alive, covers her hair. Rabbi Yosef Masas, many of the rulings that he put out were put out in a, in a category of limud zechut. I want to keep the Jewish people in. I'm not telling you to abandon the halachot that you're observing according to Shulchan Aruch. I'm telling you that I'm in a war and I'm going to win this war. And this awoke the ire of many Chachamim. There's a rabbi, Natan Neta Leiter, uh, who's an Ashkenazi rabbi who received Rabbi Yosef Masas' book in the mail. Rabbi Yosef Masas had very unique connections with Ashkenaz. In fact, for many, many years, he had a steady column that he was publishing in the Satmar newspaper, Bet Vad Chachamim. That's a fascinating little tidbit of history. 
he pulls out of the Satmar newspaper when he gets a copy of the newspaper and sees a whole attack against Rabbi Kook, who's the chief Ashkenazi rabbi in Israel. And he goes to war against the publishers of the Bedvad al-Chachamim, demanding they retract their opinion. They obviously won't, they're Satmar. And it ends up in a, in a, 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 a real war of words in which Rabbi Yosef Masa says, you shouldn't title your newspaper Bet Vad L'Chachamim, the house of Torah scholars. Rather, you should title it Bet HaKiseh, the toilet. You know, that's what it is. It's all you have over there. Is And he was adamant that this newspaper should be put out of commission. And he tells them, the Bnei Korach Lo Metu. I now know what it means that the children of Korach didn't die. They now, they all live in Satmar. That's where they are. Uh, he was quite uh, vocal about his opposition to, to them. And he, he not only does that cause him to leave the Satmar publication, it ends up causing him to write a letter to Rav Kook and to get to know him personally. And there are some tremendous letters of correspondence between, I have a shiur somewhere on YouTube, the correspondence between Rav Masas and Rav Kook. Rav Masas, the first I'm obviously a Moroccan rabbi, he tells him, I heard that you let Abu Dazara, I heard that you don't care about Shabbat, I heard that you, tell him all the things the Satmar said about him. And then says, Rav Kook, I demand an explanation from you. And Rav Kook explains, and from there on out, Rabbi Yosef Masas only refers to Rav Kook as HaMelech B'Yerushanayim, our king in Jerusalem. That's how he refers to him. Uh, it's a fascinating, and Rav Kook writes about Rabbi Yosef Masas. He gets a package of his books in the mail, and he says, Nitmal'u kol ta'eli bi'ora. All of the, the, all of the cells, all of the chambers of my heart have been full of light for receiving your books. A beautiful friendship that is born out of the hatred of the Satmar magazine. So this Rabbi Leiter must have also received some of the books of Rabbi Yosef Masas, and he says, Shalom, Hello to my dear friend, Rabbi Yosef Masas, the Rabbi in Tlemcen. I received your book, Chaim. I found beautiful and straightforward things in your work. But because the Torah is a Torah of truth, I can't lie to you. I must tell you the truth. I found some things that didn't sit well with me. And I would, I'm not able to just be silent about them. Because people will say that if I was silent, it must be that I agree with the things that you say. Those things which you were decided to be lenient about. You should know that if you would publish these halachot here in Ashkenaz, the whole country would be laughing at you for writing these things. But there's only one way I could justify perhaps the things that you've said. A rabbi say you should not judge a person until you're in his place, and I don't know the realities that you're up against that are causing you to write the things that you're writing. Here begins a collection of critiques on Rabbi Yosef Masas that I only wrote, I uh, put them together not so you should think that they're valid, but so you should know that unfortunately the the it goes to do with our first shiur. The fate of a person who thinks for themselves in the Jewish community is ostrac- to be ostracized, to be attacked on all fronts. And this is essentially what happens to Rabbi Yosef Masas. Rabbi Matzliach Mazuz, who is a uh, Tunisian rabbi, 
right? So the Sefer Chad by Algeria, there was a book that came to me from Algeria, Sharaitiv Mizeshanim, I saw years ago. Velav de Samcha Huklal, you cannot rely on this book at all. And later in the back of the book, they make sure that you know that that's the Mayim Chaim of Abu Yosef Masas. He writes similar things in another section of, of his books. Rabbi Meir Mazuz, who's the son of Rabbi Masliach Mazuz, who's now in Bnei Brak, is famous for tell, saying about, you know, he's all about gematrias and acronyms, and that's, that's Rabbi uh, Mazuz. He's a, he's a big, big into playing with words. He's a big Bal Medagdek. He's really into the, the language of Digduk in Hebrew. And he says, Masas is the acronym of Mutav Shiyush Anashim Shogegin. That people should at least sin unintentionally, then sin intentionally. That's his name. That's what he's all about. And he says, and that which my father said you shouldn't rely on him, he says, okay, but you should, in certain situations, you should see what he's saying and make your own decisions about what he says. Perhaps the harshest critique that's relevant to us is from Rabbi Vadi Yosef. Rabbi Vadi Yosef, unfortunately, uh, as much as he was criticized in his life, you would think that the message that he would walk away with that is to maybe let other Chachamim live. That uh, Sometimes he persecuted people even more harshly than he was persecuted himself. And here he has a famous Teshuvan, Yabi Omer, in which he, he discusses something that Rabbi Yosef Masah says he saw in Morocco. He saw the great rabbis of Morocco do something. And listen to what Rabbi Yosef writes, the bottom right column of page 3. Gam b'shut ma'im chayim masas. Also in the book of ma'im chayim of Rabbi Yosef Masas. He'id b'shem hagon Rabbi chayim aman migdonei rabbanei waharan. He testifies that he saw that one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Maman, that he was lenient in this matter. And listen, even though usually you should never rely on the piskei halacha of Rabbi Yosef Masas. Nonetheless, you can rely on his testimony. He was still a kosher witness in a bedin. So even though we don't rely on his halachic opinions at all, but he was still a kosher Jew, and if he says he saw something in Morocco, you can believe him. The fact that we live in a generation that someone could write such a thing about Rabbi Yosef Masas makes my hairs stand up on end. It's not the only place. Rabbi Yoshua Maman, who was one of the, he just passed away recently, Rabbi Yoshua Maman was one of the last of the Chachamim who was in Morocco who came to Israel. And he argued with Rabbi Yosef Masas in one of his uh, letters, and Rabbi Bar Yosef in his approval to that book writes, Yafehisi Harav Yosef Masas. It's good what you did that you critiqued Rabbi Yosef Masas. He wrote very bewildering things. I've decided to respect him. I'm just going to admit any references to him in my letter in Yabi Omer. In fact, I was recently studying Halichot uh, Olam with my wife. It's Rabbi Vadi Yosef's commentary in the Ben And there, uh, it was when Rabbi Yosef wrote it when he was very young. There, I, we just came across a section and he quoted Rabbi Yosef Masas that was probably before he made up his mind not to quote Rabbi Yosef Masas anymore. It was a, a slip up. There's a story here from the book Rabbeinu about Rabbi Vali Yosef that talks about Rabbi Vali Yosef saying how when Rabbi Yosef Masas came to Israel, nobody wanted him as a rabbi in Israel and how they did everything they could to not get him to be a rabbi in Israel. Rabbi Tzachak Nisim led the campaign against not having him as a rabbi in Israel. Ultimately, Abba Khushi, who was the mayor of Haifa, appoints him as the chief rabbi of Haifa. That's not accurate history, by the way. He was unanimously appointed as chief rabbi of Haifa by all the parties in Haifa at the time. And nonetheless, Rabbi Yosef says, because he wasn't really involved in the politics of the rabbinate there, he didn't voice an opinion against him. And it worked out well. Because how did Rabbi Yosef Masas repay Rabbi Yosef's kindness? 
Look at the last sentence here. Harav Yosef Masas diberim kama anashim bishvil shivachru barabenu l'rav rashi. When it came time for Rabbi Wadi Yosef to become the chief rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Masas was instrumental in pulling some strings to make sure that Rabbi Wadi Yosef could become the chief rabbi of Israel. That's normally how you repay someone uh, for, for the good that they've done to you. Here there's a Yemenite source, Rabbi Tzach Ratzabi, says some pretty terrible things about Rabbi Yosef Masas. He says that he writes some unusual things. It's obvious to anyone who reads his writings that he collected foreign ideologies from broken places. You'll see this all over his works and he says he'll write about it in a different place. And again, the only reason I brought this to you was to let you know that Rabbi Yosef Masas was not a stranger to controversy. Nonetheless, he still decided to write the things that he wrote. In the interest of time, I have to actually give you the shi'ur that I said I was going to give today. So, let's do that. On page 4. Uh, this poem here was written by Rabbi Yosef Masas. At the beginning, oh, I put the wrong source. Source 1 shouldn't say that. Source 1 should say, this is the introduction to his book, Maim Chaim. Uh, his book, Maim Chaim, the first volume, he prints this poem to his book in the cover. I actually once translated it to English. Let me see if I can pull it up for you and paste it in the chats. One second. Where do you have a poster? Maybe I'll be able to pull it up. No, no, I have it here. One second. Okay. I once started writing a book about Rabbi Yosef Masas. And, here you go. I translated this poem. One second. There must be more than that. Okay, that's the poem, my rough translation of the poem of Rabbi Yosef Masas to his book. Essentially, he tells the book that don't worry. There will be people that read you who don't like you. They'll move their lips at you. They'll try to critique you. But you should know that one day you will fall into the hands of those who can appreciate the good inside of you and disregard the things that they don't agree from you. It's a, I've never in my life read a sefer where someone writes a poem to his book. Now, comforting the book, I will send you out into the world and people will not love you. But you should know that there are good people everywhere who will appreciate you for what you're offering. It's a, it's a very special thing. It's a, I wish I had the time to read this with you. Maybe it was another time, but I posted the translation there for you. Here is what I came to talk about today. He mentions that you can light Hanukkah candles. I know it's not even Tisha B'Av yet, I'm talking about Hanukkah, but it's important. He mentions you can light Hanukkah candles with electricity. If you want to talk about electricity and Hanukkah candles, we could do that in the shiur we talk about electricity in general. But here he, he goes one step further and he says the following thing in the bottom of page 4, source 2. This is in his book, Ner Mitzvah. He has a book on the laws of Hanukkah, but it's also the artwork of Uvi Yosef Masas. Here I might be able to actually find you. No. Uvi Yosef Masas writes the following thing. And furthermore, I say, not just can you light Hanukkah candles with electricity. 
דפשוט וברור, it's clear and it's obvious, שאם היה אור האלקטריסיטי מצוי בזמן המקדש, that if electric light was available in the time of the Bet HaMikdash, ודאי שבו היו מדליקים המנורה, they would certainly use electricity to light the menorah in the Bet HaMikdash, in the temple. משום שאי אפשר להיות, שנמלא ביתנו החולין באורים גדולים של אור החשמל היקר הזה, it can be that in our mundane houses we use this beautiful light of electricity to light our homes, שהוא מעין דוגמה של מעלה, which is some heavenly force in the world, ובבית אלוהינו הקדוש, in the holy house of our Lord, נדליק בשמן זית, we'll use inferior olive oil, שאפילו העניים הגרועים מועשים אותו בזמן הזה, even the most poor people in the world don't use olive oil for light. Upashut, and not only is it a fact in my mind that if there was electricity in the Ben Mikdash, that they would use it to light uh, the menorah. Upashut, shemimenu nadlik bebayit acharon shibaneh bimerah bimenu amen. He said, I'm certain that in the third Ben Mikdash, when we build it, we will use electricity for the menorah and not olive oil. This is Rabbi Yosef Masas in a classic. A, a tangent in the middle of one of his writings telling you not only is it good enough for the Chanukiah not only am I certain that if I was around at the time of the Bede Mikdash and there was electricity we would use it I promise you that in the third Bede Mikdash they will use electricity to light the menorah with and in source 3 this introduction to many of the critiques he starts getting back in the mail of different rabbis saying, how could you say such a thing? It's bad enough electricity for a Chanukiah. A rabbi say, oils, you could light candles, but electricity, now you're telling us in the Bet HaMikdash you could light it too? And he mentions uh, that there are some rabbis who wrote kindly, he responded to them kindly, some who wrote not so kindly, he responded to them in accordance with the way they wrote to him, and everybody, he gave them an answer, he answered everyone's letters. But there's one letter from all this, these letters that stick out the most. And that is a letter to a famous Chacham, known as the Pachad Yitzchak. Don't think Pachad Yitzchak, American Jewry. Think Pachad Yitzchak, Moroccan Jewry. Uh, this is not Rav Hutner. This is Rabbi Yitzchak. Today they'll call him Sebag, Asebag, Sebag. Uh, but uh, when I heard Rabbi Shalom Asas say his name, he called him Rabbi Yitzchak Sebag. Like that, Sebag. That's how he pronounced his name. And... Um, the Pachad Yitzchak, the fear of Yitzchak, was a famous Rosh Hashiva in, uh, in Morocco. He trained Rabbi Shalom Asas. He was a unique Tamich uh, Chacham, unique. He was a powerhouse. There's a reason they called him the Pachad Yitzchak, the fear of Yitzchak. He was a, a fear-invoking Tamich uh, Chacham. And he ultimately comes to Israel, becomes a rabbi in Tirata Carmel, just outside of Haifa, uh, where he dies. It's amazing to me, he passed away in the 70s. And thinking of all the rabbis you hear about in Israel that you didn't have to ever waste your brain cells hearing about. Nobody ever talks about Rabbi Yitzchak's back. Nobody ever talks about Pachad Yitzchak in Tirat Karmel in a little bit of Knesset he built for himself over there. Was the Rosh Hashiva of Morocco in the time. Rabbi Shalom Asas writes about him. He remembers that there was another Tamich Hacham that's source 4. Another Tamich Hacham once came to the Yeshiva and tried to teach a class in the pilpul style, you know, uh, it's a certain type of Talmudic style, very prevalent in the yeshiva today. And he was asking the students questions and answers, and they answered this question, in the way they learn Talmud today in the yeshiva. Nothing is straight, it's all, it's all like that. So what happens? Rabbi Yitzchak, uh, the Pachad Yitzchak stands up, he tells the rabbi, you're just confusing my students. None of this Torah that you're teaching was taught Moshe Rabbeinu Rav Sinai. 
get up and get out. Throws them out of the yeshiva, doesn't want to hear this kind of Torah here. Says you're going to ruin their minds. Their minds are used to thinking straight. Now you're going to make their head crooked. And Rabbi Shalom Asas says that's what he felt when he came to Israel and he saw the yeshiva students that he saw. Because everyone thinks they're learning Torah, but all they're learning is crookedness. No one's actually learning Torah straight the way they should. No one is learning Tanakh and Mishnah and Talmud and Halakha straight. They're learning all kinds of things. Think about the weekly Dvar Torah you hear at a Shabbat table. If I go to one more Shabbat table where they tell me, you know, it's the parasha of the golden calf. And the gold in Gematria is really silver if you hold it up to the mirror upside down. The letters, if you read them backwards, it spells out a horse, then the cow. It's a silver horse was in Hal Sinai. You look at it and say, are you serious? That's, what you, that's a Dvar Torah you share at the Shabbat table? And everywhere you go, that's the things they talk about. They talk about all kinds of nonsensical Dvar Torah. What about just telling me what it actually says in the parasha of the Shavuot? Maybe discuss a real concept that comes out of parasha of the Shavuot. Maybe tell us things, but nobody learns Torah like that anymore. People learn Torah in a crooked way, so don't get confused when you see that Judaism comes crooked. And here's what I really came to read to you today. So Rabbi Yitzchak writes a letter to Rabbi Yosef Nassas, who's a friend of his. And he's concerned. I have a brother-in-law who writes me such letters. He's concerned. He loves me. He's concerned. You know, you're saying things that get you in trouble. Why do you say these things? Just be quiet. I don't just teach people. Uh, what do you get to teach people? My mom also, she doesn't write me letters. She just tells me that every day. Same idea. Same. It's a care. Out of care, I'm writing you this letter. So he writes here on page 5, source 5. To the great rabbi Rebiz Haksbag. Shalom, shalom. Hello to you. This is written in Elul. Elul of 1938. So this is right before World War II. And Mikhtav Kvodo Habahir Vamazir Hamalal Kol Gdotav Aval Vavit, your letter full of love that you sent me. Higiani Bimado. I reached it when you sent it. Umirova Vudaba because I was so busy. Vitokev Hamehuma Vahabehala Hapitomit Mikol Khatsot Tuata Mikama because of all of the chaos and the tumult of the war that is surrounding us. I was unable to respond. But now I wish to write to you. Raiti Mashakatav Kivodo, Higadla Shagiatilefanav, and Mashakatavti Bisifia Katan Ner Mitzvah. I saw what you wrote, my dear friend, that you think that I made a grave error. When I wrote in my book Ner Mitzvah, Kilatid, because in the future, Yedliku Minorat Hamigdash Bemor Electricity, that they'll use in the future electric light to light the, the menorah and the Bede Mikdash. And you accused me of violating one of the 13 principles of our faith. Which one? The Torah cannot change. The Torah explicitly mentions to lie with olive oil. And you're telling us that you can use electric oil. How dare you? And Rabbi Yosef Masa says, I have to respond. I have to say, I must ask forgiveness from you. There are many answers on this matter. And the truth is, there are many answers. There are three pages worth of answers. Let me try to get through just a few of them. In general, the matters of the Bede Mikdash will change. In the image of the third Ben Mikdash, which Cheskel the Prophet saw, 
And I don't know how accurate Art Scroll's rendition of it is in the back of their Tanakh. But if you've ever seen someone's rendition of the third Ben Mikdash, it looks nothing like the second or first Ben Mikdash. It's a completely different Ben Mikdash than that which Shlomo Amelch built. Even though it says, he skilled kol menachot atamnit. I by accident put Hashem's name there. Please be careful with this paper. I didn't intend to copy a kadosh b'chuz name there. Vegam hakelim nimtash hem shinui gadol. Even the utensils of the Ben Mikdash are going to be different. He says, look, a kadosh b'chuz tells him, hamizbeach et shalosh amot gavah v'orkosh taim amot v'idaber lai zashu chanish lechnei adonai. Hashem says to make a wooden altar. When really before there was supposed to be a gold altar. Instead of a golden altar that we had in the past, we'll now have a wooden altar. And even Moshe Rabbeinu's altar was wood that was covered in gold. I'm skipping to the next bold section. If you look at the measurements of the Bedimic dashes, they were supposed to be done in the way that they're said. They're not the same. If you look at the calculations in the Torah and what was actually built, the measurements were changed. If you begin to comb through the Tanakh in the order of how the Ben Mikdash should have been built, the measurements and how things actually were built, you will find discrepancies between what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to do and what was actually done. Even King Solomon in the bottom of page 5, did different than what the Torah says. He made an incense altar out of wood and covered it with, uh, out of uh, stones and covered it with cedar wood. But the Torah says, don't use stones. The Torah says, just use wood. So what is Shlomo Amalek doing? He also changed. Maybe Shlomo Amalek is also guilty of violating one of the 13 principles of our faith. Top of page 5. He now adds two of the, the, what do they call them? Cherubs in the Ben Mikdash, in the Holy of Holies. And if you keep looking, it says you'll find many differences. And that which I'm suggesting that they'll use electricity in the Ben Mikdash is not changing the Torah at all, God forbid. It's obvious that that's how it has to be. The only reason the Torah told us to use olive oil is because that's the oil that they use to light things with. But in a place where you don't use olive oil, the Torah wouldn't require from you to use olive oil. Though, the next paragraph. I have proof, not just that we, we may change the lighting of electricity, uh, that we'll use electricity instead of oil in the Ben Mikdash. I have proof that maybe there won't even be a menorah in the next Ben Mikdash. You're talking to me about changing the Torah? Did you ever read the Torah? I'm not saying just to him. I mean, did you ever see all the places where we change things in the Torah? Look, the Midrash says, There won't even be a menorah in the next Ben Mikdash. The Navi says, We built your menorah once, and you destroyed it. We built your menorah twice, we destroyed it. The next time, we're not building one. If you want to build one, you build it, but we're not building it. Bet, 
דירקות. אין פרשת הצווה, שזה מה הקדוש ברוך הוא לישראל. בעולם הזה הייתם זקוקים לאורו של בית המקדש. In this world you needed the light of the בית המקדש. אבל עתיד, אני עושה לכם הוראה. But in the future I will be the one who gives you light. ובזה נראה לתרץ קושיית מפרשים, למה לא זכרה יחזקאל בבית על העתיד? רק הבית, והמזבחות, והשולחנות, והמנורה לא זכרה כלום. And now you can begin to understand why in the third בית המקדש of יחזקאל, he mentions all of the utensils of the בית המקדש, but יחזקאל conveniently forgets to mention a מנורה. Because perhaps there won't even be a מנורה in the third בית המקדש. So now is the נביא יחזקאל going against the 13 principles of our faith? ועוד מצינו לרמב״ם. There's a famous Rambam. Someone tell me what the Rambam believes about sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Someone here for sure is an expert in Moray Nebuchim. Uh, he was ambiguous. No, uh, not ambiguous. No, in the guide, he says that there might not be a sacrifices, but in the Mishnah Torah, it remains a bit unclear. Okay, so I'm intentionally not asking about Mishnah Torah. What does he say in the Moray Nebuchim? Uh, that there will be sacrifices. Why? What's the, how do you rationalize that with all everything that the Torah says about sacrifices? So, according to him, according to Rambam, um, the sacrifices were just like something that God gave to Jews because they needed it in a way because they were not ready for a sacrifice-less uh, faith. So, the Jews were used to worshipping deities the way everybody else did. And Hashem knew, I can't take away Everything. I took away their idols. I took away. Now I'm going to take away the sacrifice too. They're not going to know what to do with themselves. The Ramam suggests that this was a sort of damage control. The Jewish people were going to have sacrifices, but limited to certain types of animals, certain times of day, certain places in the world, only in the Bet Mikdash, only in the altar, only to limit animal control and to channel it to Avodat Hashem. Which means, and he brings a source text, which is, all the prophets say, Hashem doesn't need your sacrifices. Hashem says, do I need your cows? Do I need your bulls? Am I lacking animals in my world that I need you to burn some for me? Meaning, sacrifices are all about you, not about me. And says of Yosem Masas, The bold letters in the bottom left. And even though there were many who attacked the Rambam for this, Those who loved him, they researched the Rambam's words properly and they found that there's an explicit Midrash that says this in the name of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair and therefore according to this the Rambam who made the 13 principles of faith According to him, in the future, there will be no sacrifices at all. It's been thousands of years since Jews worship idols. The Jews are one people. They serve only one God. And like we mentioned before about Christianity, Rabbi Yosef says, and because the Jews have spent so much time in exile, they have caused the rest of the world to pretty much abandon idolatry as well. As is known, he says it's not considered changing the Torah. The Rambam is not changing the Torah. He's telling you the reason for the sacrifices is X. And when that reason doesn't apply, then the reality will change as well. That's not called changing the Torah. It's not sending his hand against the Torah. That's exactly what the Torah would have said according to the Rambam's understanding of it. And he goes to, ju- to explain how with the Rambam's approach, 
you can answer a few other questions that rabbis had in different verses that they were unable to answer unless they were thinking like the Rambam. He says, look on page 6 on the top right. Do you want a better proof than that? Look on the Yilkut Mishle. What did Estel do to deserve? All the holidays will be nullified in the future. But Purim will never be annulled. So what does it tell you? It tells you that all the holidays that you know are going to be uprooted from the Torah. What is that against the 13 principles of our faith also? He goes here to uh, critique the Rashba's answer of the situation. And he mentions here in the bottom right, if you look on the Talmud, the Maser Brachot, Amar lehem ben Zoma lachachamim, ben Zoma tells the sages, v'chi maskirin itzad Mitzrayim leimot ha-Mashiach, are we going to discuss the leaving, the exodus of Egypt when the Mashiach comes? V'alok v'anemar, it already says, Amar leh lo shetakir, harei leben Zoma, zikaron itzad Mitzrayim yakir legamre, v'lerabanan yetafel. There's a dispute between the rabbis and ben Zoma. According to the rabbis, the story of the Exodus will be said, but it's not going to be so important anymore when the redemption comes. And according to Ben Zoma, we will dismiss entirely this whole concept, which is today a foundation of our faith. Zecher litat Mitzrayim. Zecher everything. Everything is because Hashem took us out of Egypt. One day, we won't even talk about leaving Egypt anymore. Is that going to be against the 13 principles? Says Zubi Yosef Masas. Now that the Chachamim themselves are telling us that this part of the Torah will be uprooted in the future, what do you do with the Midrashim? Look on page 6 on the left column. The Midrash says in Vaikra. All of the, the Leviathan, whatever this animal is, is going to be a, a toy for the Tzadikim in the next world. Don't get stuck on Agadot and their literal meanings. Let's skip a little more. That, uh, how will they slaughter these animals? The animal will come and slaughter the, the Leviathan, imagine a whale, let's pretend, uh, with, his, uh, with his horn. And the Leviathan will take its fins and cut the animal's heads off. Is that even kosher slaughter? An ox ramming an animal, an animal cutting off someone's head with its fin. Is that a kosher shechita that tzaddikim can eat from it in the next world? And that's what our rabbis say. Amar biyaba barkana, amar hakadosh b'chua. Hakadosh b'chua says, Torah chadasha mi'iti tetze. A new Torah will come forth from me. Chidush Torah mi'iti tetze. A new Torah will come out of me, says Hashem. Amar biyabarachia, b'chua says, Atid hakadosh b'chua la'asot la'avada v'tzadikim la'atid avo. Hashem will make a feast for the tzadikim in the next world. V'chol mi shelo achal nevelot ba'olam hazeh, and anyone who did not eat not kosher meat in this world, will be able to have it in the next world. And that's what the Pasuk means when it says, and then he explains, in order for you to be able to eat not kosher meat in the next world, you have to refrain from it in this world. I didn't intend to come here today to tell you about this treif fest we're going to have when the Gilgah comes. It's not the purpose of today. Rather to show you Rabbi Yosef Masaz is saying, who says that things don't change? Where did you get this idea that in Judaism things don't change? 
the Chachamim themselves are full of examples that are far more extreme than we will use electricity to light the Menorah and the Ben Mikdash. We're going to be eating nevelot utrefot with the tzaddikim in the next world. That's not scary for you? There's not going to be a menorah in the next Ben Mikdash. There will be no sacrifices that the whole Torah talks about in the Ben Mikdash. None of those things bothered you, Rabbi talks about. Now you're coming to attack me on electricity? How dare I change one of the 13 principles of our faith? Uvinyana korbanot. Oda mubo midrash tehilim, midrash tehilim. All of the animals that were not kosher in this world, HaKadosh Baruch will make kosher in the next world. And it talks about other things. All the things that were not allowed in this world will be allowed in the next world. It talks about relations, that which was not allowed in this world will be allowed in the next world. Says Rabbi Yosem Masas, how is that Midash better than something that I said? Uvinyana Korbanot, want to talk about sacrifices? The Midrash in Vaikarabas says explicitly that in the next world, in Atid Lavo, all of the sacrifices will be nullified. The Korban Todai no Batel, the thanks offering will not be Batel. All of the prayers will be nullified. But thanks to Hashem will not be annulled. Meaning, all of these things will be rid of in the next world. Tefilot, Korbanot. So I said electricity in the Mikdash and now I'm a violator of the 30 principles of faith? In the Talmud, in Masech Nidan, page 61, Amar Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef says, that all of the mitzvot will be annulled in the next world. And the next section talks about all the different books of the prophets which will be annulled in the next world. And he ends off with the following paragraph. My time has come on page 7 in the left column. Zel. That's it. This is all I could really answer back to you, my dear friend, because of the short amount of time that I have. And there are many more words that I could have written here. But one thing I want for you to be certain, that what I wrote, I wrote intentionally. I didn't just uh, get carried away with my pen like you said that I did in my letter. You tried to give me a way out. I said, Rabbi, maybe you got carried away. Thank God. My pen never exaggerates. My pen always writes that which is truth. I never am going to write something that you can say, oh, he just got carried away. I never get carried away, Sir Said we're now entering 1938, or maybe it's 1938, going into 1939. We're entering a new year. This is right before the Holocaust. I bless us with good, with peace, with long life. And therefore, my friend, please accept my blessing. That's coming from the depths of my heart. May you be written and sealed in the book of the righteous. For the year that will be full of blessing and all good. And now he does a little poem. I underline all the words that rhyme. And God who understands people's hearts, who have compassion over the earth and its inhabitants. 
V'yiten shalom b'malchuyot, and will bring peace to all the different kingdoms. V'yichadesh amenu k'shanim k'dmoniot, v'mirah b'amenu amen. May he renew our life as in the olden days. He knows that war is coming. He sees the world is falling apart. And he's giving a blessing. May we live to see better times. Ani hayom samechtet. Ani, I, hayom. Harav Yosef Mesas. Samechtet does not mean Sephardi Taho. Don't be a racist. Samechtet means Sefetav, or there's a few different things it can mean, but only it's like Shlita. You should live long. I should live long and, uh, and be well. And the purpose of today's letter, the reason I want to introduce you to this part of Rabbi Yosef Mazas, we are so programmed to think that anything that we see that is different than the way we've heard it before, anything novel, what did we mention last week? Chadash asur min haTorah. Anything new is forbidden according to the Torah. Anything different than the way we've always done it is different. You know, most of the time, if you start asking Jews questions, is that really how you always... You tell me, you can't do things different than the way we always did it. Is that really how we always did it? If I started digging back into the things you do, and I could show you that all the things that you do today or you don't do today, really a hundred years ago, everybody did. That's not the way we always did it. So how can you argue that you're the traditionalist? And Rabbi Yosef Masa says, tradition, Jewish tradition allows us to be innovative in halakha. It allows us to say something like, in the next Beit HaMikdash, I think we're going to use electricity without being guilty of violating one of the 13 principles of our faith. And unless you can get used to thinking that halakha can change, that the realities which the Torah deals with can change, then you're going to be very confused when you come across sources that suggest that such things can happen. And the Bible 7 says, the last thing you ever want to do is to attack me, then I might be a heretic. It's because if I'm a heretic, I just took all the rabbis of the Talmud, all the rabbis of the Midrash, I took the Rambam, I took them all with me now to the world of heresy. We're all heretics, all of us, because all of us believe that in the next world there won't be korbanot. All of us believe in the next world we won't pray anymore. All of us believe that all the Jewish holidays will be desecrated. All of us believe that in the next world the food might not be kosher. All of us. So now, are we all heretics? Because that's a decision you have to make. And if you threw out all of your past, then what do you have to say for yourself? How can you put me on the wrong side of history when it's clearly you? And this attitude, this confidence, in Hebrew we would say this emunah, this belief in tzitkat haderech, the righteousness of one's path, the conviction that one has to know that what they're doing is correct. It's not that I'm being an innovator, I'm not being a reformer, I'm not being a, a violator of tradition, I'm doing nothing new. We are doing things the way Chachamim have always done them. And obviously that opens up a, a Pandora's box of, so where's the red line that you can't cross? Like, where do you stop? Who gets to decide what we change and what we don't change? Can anyone do that? In what areas can we do that? Do we have examples? Practical examples? They're nice theoretical conversations. Practical examples. And so next time we study together, I wish to introduce to you a letter of Rabbi Chaim David Halavi who talks about the gemishuta shal halakha, the elasticity of halakha, and the flexibility of halakha. And if you would tell somebody, hey, do you want to hear about the flexibility of halakha? They'll just laugh at you. Try it. Go to the Beit Knesset. Tell somebody, hey, you want to hear about the flexibility of halakha? What kind of nonsensical phrase is that? Flexibility of halakha? Halakha is not flexible. And the answer is it is. But in order to understand exactly how that works, 
we have to know how to learn halakha properly and who to learn halakha from. Bezat Hashem, that will be the topic of our shiul next week. But for today, a matter of principle. A matter of principle is that he was not violating one of the 13 principles. And not only that, but it's a matter of principle that Judaism changes. It's a fact. Every group of Jews in the world has changed and adapted. Along with their chachamim, led by their chachamim. Those chachamim in every place and every time knew how to adapt Judaism properly to make it relevant to the people that were there with them. And Bezat Hashem, we'll explore that more next week.